good to be with you and to be opening God's Word to you now. It's been a, a few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, I, I was at Knock Presbyterian um, doing some of the, the things that I have to do there as convener of that vacancy. Uh, and then last week, a, a much more terrifying prospect. I went to our own Bible class um, and was in there with the, the teenagers. They, they went pretty easy on me, so uh, it wasn't too bad. Folks, let's uh, have that passage open before us. First, First Corinthians chapter 2. page 1145 and let's just pray before we we start to look at that together father god you are a great god we've just uh, declared that in our song your ways are higher than ours and your mind is, is far beyond ours. Lord, if we're ever to know you and to understand you, it will only be if you come and, and show yourself to us. If you come and speak words, simple words, that even we can understand. If you show us your glory in ways that that we can take in. Lord, come and reveal yourself to us, we pray, in your word today. Amen. Often, whenever I introduce a new sermon in a series of one of Paul's letters, I begin by recapping a little bit on the argument so far, what Paul has said. And the reason for that is these things are best understood as a complete train of thought. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I'd rather do is jump straight into today's passage and, and towards the end of our time, uh, I'll spend a little bit of time reflecting with you on the whole of chapters one and two so far. So if you understand that, if, if you're new to the, the series today or if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, um, just roll with it for a while and then hopefully we'll, we'll zoom out a little bit uh, towards the end of our time and see what the whole of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 uh, might uh, be saying to us at Kirkpatrick Memorial. So let's jump straight in. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul's been very hard on wisdom so far in the letter, uh, and there's a reason for that. He's arguing against opponents in Corinth, and they're into wisdom. They're looking for deeper theological insights, for higher spiritual highs. They've moved on from the humble teachings of Paul. He was their founder pastor, but they've moved beyond him, and they, they know a good deal better. Paul's message, in their eyes, was, is just too simple, too naive, not the sort of thing that they want to be stuck with for the rest of their days. Paul says himself that his message was simple. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul agrees with the idea that his teaching is, is relatively straightforward and simple. He doesn't, he doesn't really try to, to argue differently. But here in verse 6, he makes a, a connection which will take his opponents by surprise. He says that this, this foolishness, this simple gospel, this message of a weak, crucified Savior, this is the wisdom that we should be looking for. This is the wisdom that comes from God. So in verse 7, Paul tells the Corinthians that God's secret wisdom, it's a secret wisdom. It's not something that's self-evident for all to see. He says in verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, the, the Roman authorities of Jesus' time, they did not recognize the wisdom of God in a humble Galilean peasant teacher. They didn't see it. And that's why they killed him. Instead of worshiping him, they killed him. And then in, in verse 9, Paul quotes very freely, I must add, from Isaiah 64. If it was an English literature exam and your quotation was as dodgy as Paul's, uh, I think you might be marked down a bit. Paul does this sometimes. He's quite free in his quoting from the Old Testament. But he says that under normal circumstances, no one can fathom the things of God. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But look at verse 10. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Paul says, the wisdom of God is not self-evident for all to see. A crucified Messiah doesn't make sense. But while we can't even begin to conceive of these things that God has planned, God reveals his wisdom to those who love him. It's not self-evident, but God chooses to show it. In the remainder of our passage this morning, Paul explains how it is that God lets us in on, on his mind, the secrets of his mind. And to help you follow Paul's argument, I'm going to, to use some slides here on the screen to show you an outline. So the Spirit shows God's wisdom. The first way that the Spirit does this is, is, first of all, he knows God's wisdom. So in verses 10b and 11, Paul says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? Paul says no one can know a person's mind except that person himself. So let's try that out and see if he's right. Let's try an experiment. I'm thinking of a film star. And I want you to tell me who it is. Take a moment to... I'm sure if you think long enough, you'll get it. You know, it's on my mind, so... It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to know the mind of another person. The best you could do is have a wild guess. You don't know my thoughts, but my spirit, my inner self does. You probably didn't think 
or, well, I know you're going to say you were thinking of Daniel Day-Lewis, the actor from My Left Foot and There Will Be Blood. Hands up, those who were thinking Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul's point is nobody knows the thoughts of God except God himself. God's own spirit is the only one who knows what's on God's mind. So that's the first thing. God's wisdom is understood or known by his spirit. Second thing, the spirit shows God's wisdom. So in verse 12, Paul tells us that, that the spirit goes, to, goes on to show God's wisdom. We have not received the spirit of the world, but have the spirit who is, who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. All Christians, the Bible teaches, have God's spirit, so God helps them understand his mind or his wisdom. So Paul's making a, a very bold and personal claim here. He's saying that the message he preached in Corinth wasn't his own. It wasn't some smart stuff that he dreamt up. Paul's not a religious genius. He's simply somebody who's received a revelation from God. The Spirit shows God's wisdom. The Spirit knows God's wisdom. He shows God's wisdom. He's also inspired the, the apostles to, to teach it and preserve it for us in the Bible. So verse 13, Paul speaks of the Spirit's revelation. And he says, this is what we teach, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Paul doesn't keep the revelation that the Spirit has given him to himself. He passes it on to others. And the same Spirit who entrusted Paul with that message ensured that he passed it on accurately for Paul and for the other apostles. And this is why we can trust the New Testament. It's not the, the writings simply of men. It's not just another human book. We can be confident that God spoke to these guys by his Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, finally, who's the author of the Bible. And that means if we want to get to know God's wisdom today, we must be people of, of God's Word. The fourth and final way in which the Holy Spirit lets us in in the secrets of God is that he, he confirms it to us when we see it. So in verse 14, Paul says, The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they're spiritually discerned. Paul's making the point that if somebody hears God's Word taught, or if they read the Bible, that's not the final stage in the process. A person still needs to have the help of God's Spirit to discern the things of God, to, to know them to be true for themselves. Without God's Spirit, we can't understand God. But when God's Spirit indwells us, then His Spirit confirms His message to us. Let me summarize uh, very quickly what we've been thinking about so far this morning. This passage was designed, as Paul wrote it, to correct the Corinthians' false view of wisdom or of spiritual maturity. 
they thought they were wise or spiritually mature because they'd moved on. They'd moved on from the simple things that Paul had taught them. They were now the spiritual elite. Paul and other Christians were, were inferior to them. But Paul responds by insisting that a person who's, who's really, truly spiritual and mature isn't the one who's relying on something extra. The truly mature Christian is the one who, who's begun to understand God's wisdom, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. As I said at the outset, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time now looking back over the whole of chapters 1 and 2 to see what the implications of everything we've learned in these first weeks might be for us as a church here. These first couple of chapters present us with three important challenges. <clears throat> Christian people ought to expect to be considered foolish. They shouldn't divide the spirit and the word. And they should keep the cross at the center. Firstly, expect to be considered a fool. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins dismisses the cross. Uh, he says it's vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. If I read from the book, he goes on to say, we should also dismiss it as barking mad. If God wants to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? without having himself tortured and executed in payment. If you know Richard Dawkins, you'll know that he is, is pretty outspoken. This is pretty characteristic of the kinds of things that he writes and says. His view might seem extreme, but actually I think it's a pretty widely held view in Britain in 2011. The world cannot accept the message of the cross. The world dismisses it as crazy nonsense, and we shouldn't be surprised about that. So if we find our friends and our colleagues treating us with a mixture of confusion and contempt and pity, it's precisely what we should expect if we hold the truth of Christ crucified and we hope to share it with others. A second challenge of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. If we're committed to following Jesus Christ in this world, we should never divide the word and the spirit. It's interesting to listen in on some of our conversations about church life and different churches. Maybe you've heard the kind of chat that says, you know, first Ballyhackamore is a, a church that's very strong in God's word, and second Ballyhackamore is very strong in, in God's spirit. No matter how much that may appear to be the case to us, biblically it's not a valid distinction. The Bible doesn't allow us to separate the word of God from the spirit of God. If a church is led by God's spirit, it will be strong in the word of God which the spirit has given us. 
If a church is serious about the Bible, it will be constantly drawn back to the Spirit of God who inspired Scripture and is at the very heart of of how God works in our lives. Just a a little bit more about the the Bible. I think some Christians today are beginning to to imagine that the Bible is out of date in our fast-moving technological culture. Uh, with its new insights into morality, uh, we, we need to, to press on and find new ways of discerning God's will. If the Bible happens to clash with a, a dominant view of our culture, whether it's in the area of sexuality or in the area of the uniqueness of Christ, then so much the worse for the Bible. And Christian people will talk like this. And they'll claim that God is is leading them on uh, to a a newer and and fresher understanding. But Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians stands against them. We're not to produce our own individual contemporary versions of Christianity. True wisdom and spiritual maturity recognizes the revelation of God given to us by his spirit through the apostles and now recorded in scripture. A wise and mature Christian isn't one who who forges on from that place, but one who recognizes the authority of the word of God and submits themselves to it. A third thing, and finally, that we've learned from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, if we're committed to following Jesus Christ, we must keep his cross at the center. The opening verse of chapter 2, Paul tells the Corinthians that he came among them and resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we'll see as we read on in 1 Corinthians that Paul is willing to talk about a huge variety of things. Even just flick through it sometime and look at the headings of the, the paragraphs in your NIV Bible. So, so Paul isn't saying that he never talks about anything else other than the cross or that every talk on no matter whatever subject it is ends up being exactly the same, an altar call to, to some formula with, with the cross mentioned. That, that's not what Paul's talking about. We can see that later in his, in his writing and his teaching. What Paul's talking about here is a, a commitment never, ever to be distracted from the central importance of the cross in his own life and his preaching, no matter how unpopular it might be in the world. Every disciple of Jesus Christ ought to make the same resolution. If you've been around Kirkpatrick Memorial for a while, you'll probably have a bit of an idea of who I am and what's important to me in my ministry. You'll know that I believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, that I have teaching series about the whole of life, that I love to think about what God's Word teaches us about our workplaces and our families, about money and about time and all sorts of other things. I believe that the whole of life is important because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
But please don't be confused by that breadth of vision. Just in case there's even the smallest doubt in your mind, I want to reiterate here this morning my absolute commitment to preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else flows from there. Nothing else stands beside it. Everything flows from the centrality of Jesus Christ crucified. And no matter how foolish this might sound to the world around us, this is the wisdom of God. Just this week, I got a copy of a a quarterly newsletter that I get from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. A good part of the magazine was dedicated to the memory of John Stott, the influential Anglican pastor and preacher who was the founder of the London Institute and who died just this past summer. On the front cover, there's a photograph of John Stott. I've brought it with me. You won't be able to see it very well, but you might. It shows John Stott here with his, with his hands and his hips facing the world with a steely determination. And at the top of the page, there's a, a verse from another of Paul's letters and that just about sums up John Stott's ministry. Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified in Corinth. John Stott preached Jesus Christ and him crucified in London and from there throughout the world. I want to join them and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified wherever and for as long as God gives me breath. Let me close this morning by sharing with you a comment uh, from my New Testament professor, Gordon Fee, which I read in a commentary this week as I prepared. He's talking about 1 Corinthians and this, these, this material that we have covered. And he says this. I just stopped in my tracks when I read it. People are revealed for who they are by their response to the cross. People are revealed for who they are by their response to the cross. And he goes on. He says, to see it as foolishness means to stand over and against God and his ways. Brothers and sisters, to not get the cross is to not get God at all. It's to stand over and against him. It's to refuse his will for the world and for our lives. To get the cross, on the other hand, is to grasp the very wisdom of God. All of his grace and his mercy and his kindness, his forgiveness. What about me? 
And what about you? What's your response to the cross of Jesus Christ?